not sure how many of us were here present last week. Uh, last week we were looking at chapter 12 uh, of this book of Samuel. And I don't know about you, if, if it weren't for the fact that we know where this story goes, we might have felt hopeful. In fact, reading uh, the words of Samuel, the rebuke that he brought upon the people, seeing God's signs and how the people realized their wrongs and their wickedness, they, how they understood that their request for a human king was idolatrous and disobedient and blasphemous in the sight of God, how they repented and how they pled uh, th that Samuel would pray for them, how they sought God's forgiveness. Had we not known where this story goes, we might have felt hopeful. Oh, it all culminates in that great verse that last week, we, for, for time's sake, we, we didn't really uh, dwell uh, a lot in verse 22 of chapter 12, where it says, uh, doesn't it, that for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has, ple it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. The reason why God forgave them was not because they were worthy of forgiveness, but because of his great name. And the chapter ended with these words in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 12. Only the, this, this exhortation from Samuel to the people, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Surely, this was the turning point for the people of Israel. Surely this was the, the point where they, they found a, a, a new faith and obedience to God. And they, and they turned from their wicked ways. They stopped being a, a wicked uh, people, a stiff-necked people. And, they, and they, they lived righteously before the Lord. Trusting and obeying Him always. Surely Saul took the... the especially at heart the message and he and he and he persevered in trusting and obeying the lord but as we read it was not so no sooner had samuel exhorted encouraged the people to trust to obey god no sooner saul heard these words especially for him we come to chapter 13 and we realize that yet again, they fell. Yet again, they resorted to unbelieving uh, actions. They disobeyed the Lord, in particular Saul, in this chapter. Now, our passage today teaches us, doesn't it? It shows us how quickly, how suddenly, how rapidly one falls into spiritual ruin. It wasn't a given. And in God's decrees, yes, nothing that happens in this chapter is a, a, a surprise. Seeing that he predestined everything that comes to pass from the beginning of time. But it wasn't necessarily to be so. Humanly speaking, there was an option. 
Humanly speaking, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, had you been obedient, God would have established your kingdom forever. But yet he was disobedient. And we learn how fast, how fast we can fall into spiritual ruin. How we learn how fast God can bring about his judgment. Disobedience, brothers and sisters, that's what we learn in this passage. That disobedience, no matter how small, is no light thing. Disobedience, no matter how seemingly inconsequential, as I'm sure Saul would say, what is really the matter about my disobedience? The disobedience, no matter how inconsequential it looks to us, it is a great matter to God, and it leads to great destruction, to big trouble. And that's what we see in Samuel 13, right away. Even though the king was warned in chapter 12, he did not follow, he did not trust, he did not obey God's commands. And then really, in the, in the history of Saul, this is the point, notwithstanding his shortcomings that we've considered in, from chapter 8 up until uh, chapter 12, notwithstanding all of those shortcomings, those are character traits, this is the point where all begins to unravel for him. And he enters this spiritual um, spiral, descending spiral, that leads to his rejection and to his replacement. Today we look at Saul's time as a king. We won't spend much time here in, in verse 1. It says that Saul reigned for one year, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, just to say this, some of you I know, you read, uh, use more modern translations in your devotional time, because it tends to be easier to read. Uh, and I won't, I won't go into the dangers of that at this moment. Um, but if you have other translations, you might find that it's completely different. And this is a big discussion in, in, uh, in, in the academical circles, what it means here. It's a very difficult verse to translate. But nonetheless, it is not the main point here. It is not the, the plain thing in Scripture in this chapter, so we won't dwell on it. Um, but it all has to do with, with uh, the lack of, of, uh, of the years being mentioned there. But we'll... we'll move from there but i felt we need i need to mention this because some of you might go back i hope to meditate on this passage throughout the week and if you find that it looks significantly different from uh, our translation here just bear in mind that it's a very debated uh, uh, translation uh, in verse one but the main point is really obedience Obedience is fundamental, and disobedience is deadly. I don't think I'd need to belabor um, much this point, but sin entered the world, as Paul says, through disobedience. The sin that cast mankind into, into death spiritually, the sin that led to the fall, was the sin of disobedience. Paul says, for us, by one man's disobedience. So for God, disobedience is, uh, obedience is important, and disobedience is terrible. 
And the lesson for us is clear from this passage. We must not lean on the way of the flesh. And that's what kind of the, the framework that we'll be looking at chapter 13. We must not lean on the way of the flesh, but we must walk in the way of faith. And that's what we see from the beginning. Notwithstanding verse 1, as I said, we'll move to verse 2, which is much plainer and much more direct and, uh, and clear for us. We see that Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with him, and uh, another 1,000 were with his son. We're introduced here to Jonathan. We'll talk more about Jonathan next week. We'll, we'll kind of uh, ignore him for a bit here. But he, he divided the men, not equally, but he divided the men. He placed them strategically in, in, uh, in central points in the, in the region of Israel so that the, he had this garrison. He had this, the, these two armies uh, in central locations ready to defend. But I don't think this is, this is really a... a uh, a wonderful showmanship of, uh, of uh, hindsight and uh, of, uh, of um, military genius on the part of, of Saul. Because I might be mistaken. I, I didn't have the time to go and check every single other instance of, of Israel's armies. I believe this is the first time where, where a leader in Israel, this is the first king, but where a leader in Israel has mustered and... and, uh, and uh, created a standing army for Israel. And I don't need to tell you how unbelieving this action is. Because Israel was never to depend on the, str on the strength of armies. Israel was never to depend on the, on the strength uh, uh, and wisdom of strategies and, and uh, of, uh, of military genius. Israel was to depend on the almighty, invincible God. Uh, God. In fact, I, I believe that this is kind of casting our minds back. You remember in chapter 8 when Samuel said uh, to the people about the ways of the king. He said, this king, the king you, will, you, you want to have, the king according to the nations, he will be and act like the kings of the nations. He will take your, your men and he will conscript them to their armies. And here, three chapters later, we find that prophecy, we find that warning coming to pass. Saul, very much like the kings of the nations, he chose the way of the flesh. They were never commanded to, to muster up an army for safety. They were told to trust God. And we see how the flesh is. The flesh is always uh, pushing us not to trust in God, not to, to, uh, to, to have faith in God, but to trust in our own selves, this self-reliance of the flesh. We cannot leave it to chance. If you want something done, you better do it yourself kind of mentality. That's the mentality of the flesh. That's not the mentality of the spirit of the faith. The flesh always requires of us this unwavering self-trust. Um, and that's what we see here. And that's what we see in our lives. Isn't that the temptation for all of us? To start trusting ourselves. To, to if you want something done... Uh, I'm not going to wait on the Lord for this. I'm going to do it myself. That's what Saul does here. And then you move on. Verse 3, verse three 4. You see that not only uh, the flesh is self-reliant, uh, the, the flesh is also self-promoting and self-centered. 
I don't think I'm reading too much into the text. When, when we read here that Jonathan ever, uh, and again, we'll look more at Jonathan next week, but uh, uh, as he's presented to us, that Jonathan, his son, he, he takes uh, and he, he, he defeats the garrison of the Philistines. But what is it that Saul does when this happens? He blows literally uh, his own trumpet. He, he picks up a shofar, that's the word there, um, and he, he, he calls throughout the land saying uh, about the great thing that has happened. But he takes all the credit for himself. And I think I'm not reading too much into it. Where is the Saul from a, from a few chapters ago that when they wanted to kill his, uh, uh, the unworthy men that were against him, he, he said, oh, he, for today God has worked salvation. It seems like he's already falling into that sin uh, that, we will, that will become very familiar to us in him of, of uh, self-engrandizing, as we will see. Why didn't Saul, by the way, take the initiative? Why was it Jonathan the one that did this? Why was it Jonathan the one that, that, that went and fought and defeated the Philistines? Is it a, an indication of the condition of his heart, his passivity that has been so clear and, and so undeniable in the, in the, in the last chapters? In fact, the, the, he's going to be active. He's going to take the, the, the lead here. Uh, and the, the time that he takes the lead, he, he, he commits the worst sin. What is, it's so troubling that Saul takes credit for what his son has done. But again, isn't that the way of the flesh? Isn't that the way that the flesh pulls us? We are always willing to take some credit if we act according to the flesh. The flesh wants the spotlight. The flesh desires to be in the limelight of, of, the, uh, of the world's praises. He could not have, Saul could not have someone rise above him. In fact, that's why he's going to hate David later on. And this is what we've been presented, the way of the flesh and the way of, of, uh, of, the, of faith. Faith is always content in working and, 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 and giving the glory to God. The flesh, no, the voice of the flesh needs to be heard. The voice of the flesh needs all the hearers to hear what I've done. Blow the trumpet. Let everyone know. Self-promotion. And that's what lives in, every, in the heart of every man. And, and brothers and sisters, we're fooling ourselves if we don't know that we also have the same kind of mentality. We want to self-promote. We want others to look at us. And, and, it, and it is a sin, and we are called time and time again. It's one of those constant refrains in Scripture to, to, to be humble, to have a, a correct view of ourselves. Romans 12, verse 3, For I say, though, the grace through the grace given to me, Paul says, to everyone who is among you, do not think uh, of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, to think rightly, as God has dealt to each one measure of faith. Philippians 2, when Paul is encouraging the believers there, if he feels the need to encourage the believers to pursue this way, it's because there is a danger that we go the other way, right? Scripture doesn't waste words. If we're, if we're being warned and being encouraged to pursue one way, it's because it's, there is a very real possibility that we, are, that we wander to the wrong way. And he says, let nothing be done of selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And he goes on to say, let this mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the, hum, the humility of Jesus, the servant-like attitude, the, the, the attitude that a Christian should have that mimics the attitude of Christ, that does not desire the spotlight or the limelight. But not only that, I wish this was only that, and we, we haven't got to the worst part yet, but not only that. I think there is something there when Saul says, let the Hebrews hear. You see there in verse, um, verse 3 at the end, let the Hebrews hear. You know, some, sometimes the smallest of things indicate uh, something of, of a grandeur, uh, of a bigger nature. You, if you have a straw, even a, a small straw will, will, when the wind blows, it will point towards where the wind blows. Even the smallest things some, sometimes betray uh, bigger things. And even, I think even this, this word, this, this that Saul says here, betrays his heart. But it was not normal to refer to the people of God, especially if you're an Israelite, to refer to, to your own people as the Hebrews. That's not how Moses referred to the Israelites. He called them Israelites. He called them by the name of God. That's not how Joshua, uh, Gideon, that's not how any of the great man of faith in Scripture referred to the people of God. It's always by the name given to them by God, Israelites. You know who are the only people that refer to the people of God as Hebrews? It's the, the enemies of God. In fact, it was the, the way that the, the Philistines referred to, to, uh, to the Israelites when, they had a, when the ark came into the camp and there was this big shout and they, and they were kind of baffled. Where are these uh, Hebrews uh, so happy about? The people of God, when they are called by, 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 by the, these heroes of the faith, they are called by his name. But the flesh, again, is totally ignorant to the things that only the, the eye of faith sees. But that's where, what's happening here, right at the beginning. But then we, we move to the next section. Uh, and, uh, and again, Saul gathers the, 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 the Israelites to him. Usually, the, in Scripture, when the people of God gather, and it's a good gathering, they gathered before the Lord. You kind of wonder if is the is the the author of of Samuel saying something? They gather towards him, towards Saul. They gather they gather to Saul at God, uh, at Gilgal, and as they're gathered there, the Philistines rise up. The Philistines rise up to to avenge what had just happened, and this is very normal. This is very normal. You, you just went and murdered uh, uh, a great number of the men in that, in that, uh, ga in that uh, garrison in Geba. Of course there's going to be a response. There is always a response. 
The Philistines were the oppressors here, and the Israelites were under their dominion, basically, in the land of Israel, especially in that region. And their act of, of fighting off the Philistines in that garrison was seen as an act of rebellion, as, as an act of, of, uh, of opposition. Of course they're going to rise up, and they're going to fight you. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they weren't expecting, or were they? But the response was brutal and undeniable. You could say the same thing, and I'm not going to get into that. I've been trying very hard to avoid political things in the pulpit, but you could say the same thing from a, a few weeks ago. Those, those uh, terrorists from Hamas, they, they come into the, to, to civilian populations, and they murder, they, they do all those kind of things, and, and of course it's going to provoke a response. It's only the natural thing, and that's what happens here. They're going to avenge, they want to avenge the blood of their brothers. What they didn't expect was the number. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sand which is on the seashore in its multitude. And the problem is, Saul is not, is not God. They're there gathered around Saul, 3,000 of them, looking at Saul, well, you brought us here. And they look around and they start seeing all those armies come. And of course, they, their, their knees start to shake. Had they had seen a vision of God, just like Joshua saw in, the, in this same place in Gilgal? This, in Gilgal was, was where Joshua was when the commander of God's army of the Lord of hosts showed up to himself. They would have had the courage. They would have been livened up to fight. But not in this case. They're looking at Saul. Saul, have you seen the number of people? More numerous than the sand on the seashore. And they start to tremble. And what they start doing? They flee. They go each uh, to wherever they can find, in rocks and holes and in pits and in, in, in caves. And hold on to this thought because next week we'll talk a little bit more about the, the fact that they're hiding in these places. They kind of became like Saul, isn't it? Saul at, at the sight of, of a little trouble back in, or a, a, of a, a difficult situation a, a few chapters ago. He, he hid among the, 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 the stuff that was there and he had to be pointed out by God. They kind of become like, like their, their king. But this indeed is what's happening here. They didn't have a heavenly vision that gives them the heavenly courage. They only had a king like the, the nations have. It's not gonna work this time. 3,000 versus 30,000, uh, 6,000, and God only knows how many men. Had they had the sense that the Lord was with them, they perhaps would have mustered the courage to fight, for the Lord was on their side. And in this case, they only had the king that they asked. The king like the nations, to defend them and to save them. And this is what happens. And they flee and they run. And what happens to Saul? He starts despairing. Seven days he's there. And he's despairing because every day it seems like there's less and less people. By the end of it, he has 600 men. And yet even then you could say, well, in Judges, there, was a couple of, there were a couple of situations that, that a judge... Uh, with the Lord by his side, with 300 or 600 men, was able to defeat armies. 
But it's not the case with Saul, is it? Saul despairs. Samuel said that he was coming. The prophet said that he would be here. He's not shown up. Where is he? He commanded me to wait. It was a plain command. But where is he? And he despairs. And again, to go back to the theme of flesh and faith, isn't that the way of the flesh? The way of the flesh doesn't want to wait. The way of the flesh is, uh, is impatient. He wants it here and now. It's not, wait, uh, it's not the way of faith. The way of faith waits upon the Lord. The way of faith is the way of Psalm 27, verse 14, that says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. But now, Saul clearly is acting on, in the flesh. Samuel doesn't come. He's not arriving. It's the beginning of the seventh day. Samuel said he's going to be here. He clearly has, has broken his promise. I need to do something. I'm going to do something. No matter, the instructions of Samuel were clear, but I, want to do, I need to do something. He's not willing to wait in God, on God. The flesh never waits. And Saul does the most wicked act says there from verse uh, 7 onwards, says there that he called for the, for the offering to be uh, brought, for the burnt offering and the peace offering to be brought, and he sacrificed them himself. And right on cue, providentially right on cue, just in time, as he finishes doing this, who is it that comes? Who is it that shows up in scene? Samuel. He sees, as he's finishing the, the bird offering, he looks at, oh, there's, there's Samuel. I'm going to go and greet him. And what are we told? That as he got to Samuel, immediately he hears these solemn words that you never want to hear. In Scripture, when these words are spoken, it's never a good thing. What have you done? They are never good words. They are never words that, 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 that bode well for the person who's, who's being questioned. They were the, they, those were the words that Eve heard in the garden when God himself asked her, what is it that you have done? Those were the words that Cain heard, from, again, from the, from the mouth of God when he murdered Abel. Those were the words that Joshua said to Achan when he sinned. And brought, and brought defeat upon the, the people as he was hiding and lying about what he had done. What have you done? Most don't need to say. Samuel knows. Samuel sees. Samuel can smell the, the smell of burnt offering. And he knows that Saul is not a priest that is uh, capable or, or authorized to do this. And as Samuel asks this, Saul responds, Well, when I saw the people were scattered from me, and what you, that you were not coming within the days appointed, when, uh, when I saw the Philistines gathering, then, when I, and then I said that, that the Philistines were, were going to do this, and I, look, it's not my fault. That's what he's saying. Samuel, it's not my fault. 
It was the circumstances. It was the fact that you were late. Were you not late, I wouldn't have done this. It was God's fault. If God hadn't sent the Philistines, where have you seen this? Where uh, people just uh, throw the blame at others for their own sins. It starts right there in the garden. Who told you that you were naked? Adam, who told you that you were naked? Oh, it was the woman that you gave me, God. I'm not, and I'm not the first one to notice this. He's not only pointing the, 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 the finger at Eve, he's pointing the finger at God. And basically, that's what Samuel, Saul is doing here as well. He's pointing the finger at Samuel, he's pointing the finger at God, he's pointing the finger anywhere else but himself. And isn't that the way of the flesh as well? The way of the flesh never recognizes our wrongdoings. It's always someone else's fault. It's the circumstances. It was so-and-so that, that, that made me do this. It was God, ultimately, that ordered the circumstances just right that I would sin. But yet James says that God does not tempt anyone to sin. And was it, what is it that Samuel says to him? You have done foolishly. That's the way of the flesh. You want to, uh, a one-sentence description of the way of the flesh is you have done foolishly. You have, not you have not trusted. You are impatient. You disobeyed. You have not obeyed the word of God. I was forced to do it, Saul would say. You kind of feel for Saul, don't you? Because in his circumstances, let's, let's be honest with one another. How many of us would have probably fell, fell into the same sin? Would have come to the same conclusion? Would have done the same thing? The enemy's approaching. The people of God are fleeing. He had 3,000. That was not great. But now he has 600. And, and yet, day by day, it's, it's like a, 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 it's getting thinner and thinner. Oh, that God would open our eyes. That God would open our eyes. That, that we would see the folly. That we would see the foolishness when these kind of things happen to us. And Samuel chastises Saul for his disobedience. That's there in verse, from verse 13 uh, all the way to verse uh, 14, or 13 and 14, two big verses. And, and they're kind of encapsulated in this sandwich. And uh, the, really, the only thing I want us to look at is that Samuel puts the, the finger on the, on the, on the, on the sore. It, it's a sandwich there. It's, he begins by saying, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. And he finishes by saying, because you have not kept the commandment, or, or you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The consequence of his sin is that the kingdom will no longer be through his son. That his dynasty begin, began with him and his dynasty will end with him. There is another one that God is looking for. One who is according to his own heart. We'll speak a little bit more about this in a moment. But you see, the sin that Saul committed was the sin of disobedience. The sin of insubordination. He did not trust. He did not obey he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to follow the way of the flesh instead of following the way of faith. And that's what he did. 
He did not take to heart the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, the beginning, the, the first verse of this great psalm that speaks about God's law and being obedient to it and, and living life in light of God's law. Psalm 119, verse 1, as the, 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 the great temple archway that we go in as we begin to read this psalm says, How blessed are those who are, have a perfect way who walk in the law of the Lord. Saul did not walk in the law of the Lord. He walked in the law of his own flesh and understanding. And therefore, he fell and he brought destruction upon the nation. But let me just say a word before we conclude about what exactly was his sin. Disobedience, yes. Disobedience to what? Well, disobedience, first and foremost, to what God had told me, told him. Uh, what God had told him with regards to, to waiting for Samuel. Samuel was to be there seven days, after seven days. And at the beginning, or at the middle of the seventh day, he became despairing, impatient, and he failed. That was one disobedience. The second disobedience, and I think it's not insignificant here, I think it's perhaps even the most significant, is the type of disobedience that he, he, he performed. He offered sacrifices to God in an unworthy, unrighteous way. He was not supposed to, to be the ones offering sacrifices. He's not a priest, he's a king. Only the priests can present sacrifices. Oh, but surely, some will say, surely the dire need of the day the, the, the national situation that they were in uh, called for a little bit of wiggle room, for a little bit of latitude, or, 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 or a little bit of, of uh, uh, nuance uh, to do with God's uh, commands. Surely, in, the, in, the, in such a pressing situation, uh, you, you can have a little bit of, of, uh, uh, of a, a little bit of wiggle room with those kind of commands. God will not be as, as unfair as to deny this, will he? That's what people say when it comes to obeying, obeying God's word, word when circumstances are difficult. Oh, in this kind of case, you kind of can play a, a little bit and, and loosen a little bit. Saul, Saul needs to get going with waging this war that is actually a, a, a holy war, a war that God wants to be fought you see, God, and it's not just in Samuel, it's not just in the Old Testament, it's all throughout the scripture. God is not so much concerned about Israel winning a war as he is about him being worshipped in the way that he has commanded. We're not to play with the worship of God. We are not to play fast and loose with the ways of God. Again, theologically speaking, we all have heard these terms, the regulative principle of worship, all things that God commands to do, we do. Those things that God doesn't say, we, we don't do. Because God takes his worship seriously. But that's basically the, the sin here. Disobedience, untrust, untrusting, disbelieving attitude. This whole story is, is an important lesson for us. Because the God of the Old Testament is the, is the God of the New Testament. It's exactly the same God. He hasn't changed his ways. He hasn't changed uh, or loosened his demands. He hasn't changed his character. What it tells us is that God does not play with his worship. 
It tells us that if we want to do God's work in a way that God is pleased, we need to be obedient to the way he tells us to do his work. We're not the ones that set the agenda. We're not the, the, the commanders and we're not the, the, the strategizers. He is the one that sets the terms of his worship, of his service. Let us not be tempted to think like Saul when it comes to obeying God's word, that there is a little bit of wiggle room in what God just said. That's how you end up with, with uh, liberal churches. I, I went on, the, on Friday, I went with uh, our brother Ruloff and, uh, and Jan. We went for, for a nice walk through, the, through, the, through, through, through central London. And we, I'm not going to name names, but we came to a, a Baptist church there in central London. And uh, the, the mission statement on the door was just appalling all about it, how inclusive they are, how they are seeking to discover uh, the inclusive mind of God and, and how they, they celebrate all kinds of people and all of that. And, and they, but they still call themselves Christian. They still call themselves Christian. They play fast and loose with the worship of God, with the service of God. And great will be their downfall. It is acting foolishly. We should be careful with that. But I'll finish. This chapter doesn't have a, a, a happy ending. This chapter is a, is a, is a part of, the, of a bigger uh, narrative here, which is chapter 13 and 14. But I don't want to finish on this sour, uh, bleak note. And I don't think I need to, to look very hard to find a, a glimmer of some hope in the midst of this bleak and dark, troubling passage. The hope is there, isn't it? Just as Samuel is pronouncing judgment, just like in Genesis, isn't it wonderful? Just like in Genesis, just as God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent, God offers just a glimmer of hope of salvation to come. Look there, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a commander, to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It's easy to, to lose, uh, to, to miss it. But isn't there a promise there? Isn't there a, a glimmer of hope? of God saying, it's not, I'm not done yet with this people. You failed. You sinned. You will pay for your sins. But I'm not done with being faithful. Not because the people deserve it. Not because they are uh, worthy of his salvation, but because of his great names, for his great name's sake. And he makes that promise. A man after his own heart. Like in Eden, even at the point of judgment, there is still a glimmer of the gospel, a glimmer of the good news. God promising someone special would come. 
Not someone like Saul, who was a man uh, according to his own heart, a man after the flesh, a man that they asked for, but a man according to the heart of God. And of course, the author of Samuel, he's not thinking in New Testament terms. He's thinking about uh, David. David is the, this man according to God's heart, as the author of Samuel saw it. But we know the story. Samuel, uh, David was not really the, the perfect man as well. He also sinned, notwithstanding he was a repentant sinner. He was a regenerate uh, sinner, um, but he also sinned. He was not fully according to God's own heart, certainly. But to, to David, God made a covenant. With David, God made a covenant. It's there in 2 Samuel 14, if I'm not mistaken. 13 or 14, uh, he said, I will establish your kingdom. I will establish this, this dynasty. The same thing that we rejected from Saul because of his sin to David. God says, your throne will be established. It's not going to be you, but one of your son. It's not going to be Solomon as well, as we'll see as well. But your throne will be established forever and ever. And the New Testament speaks of the son of David. The New Testament brings the son of David, this son that was promised into the picture. He tell, the New Testament tells us that in the city of David, in Bethlehem, was born one who was of, of the line of David, Jesus our Savior. He was the perfect man according to God's own heart. He never sinned. In fact, when in the wilderness he was faced with, with this same question that Saul was faced about trusting and obeying, he was fully trusting his God and Father, and he was fully obedient to his word. He rejected and he won over Satan. He said that man shall not live by bread alone, but out of, from every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He said that you shall not put your God to the test and Jesus was successful where Saul and even David and Solomon and wherever, where every other son and daughter of Adam have failed. And because of his faithfulness, as the author of Hebrews says, his throne was established. His throne, as the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 45, that is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is the one that has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He is the one that never lived according to the flesh or following the way of, of the flesh. He lived, uh, he was in the, according to the flesh, but he never lived in the way of the flesh, but he always lived in the way of faith. And because of his obedience, the New Testament tells us that all of us who are in union with him, as Paul says to the Romans, through one man's disobedience came death, and through one man's obedience came life. Through his obedience, through the, his obedience, we now have life, and we are made righteous in him. Not that we may live sinning in continued sin, but that we may be transformed into his image to live by faith like he lived. That is what God would have us do, to obey him, to follow his pattern, to trust and obey his word.
This is God's work in us as his people. Yes, we have wars to face. We have circumstances that, that pull us uh, like Saul did. But it is not a foregone conclusion that we need to fall like Saul fell. Because we have God by our side. And we need to trust him always. And we need to obey him.